and welcome to episode 1674 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing well. Happy week of opening day. Thank you. <laughs> you too. And happy vaccine week for you as well. Yes! It was very exciting. I've never been so excited to drive through cones and sit in my car. It was very, but I'm going to tell you, it was it was pretty, uh, it was moving, you know? Yeah. There were all kinds of folks there to get vaccinated, and there were all kinds of folks there volunteering to help facilitate that vaccination. And, uh, you know, we're not out of the woods all the way, but we're, we're moving forward, and it was very affirming to, like, see what science and collective action can do when it is mustered and put to a good purpose so Mm -hmm. it was great and then it was nice because i got my shot very late at night at state farm stadium which is like doing 24-hour vaccinations and i was nervous to be vaccinated the day before a day i knew i was gonna have to work a lot and i think i slept through the part of like the spaciest part of it some people feel a little tired and Mm -hmm. like their mind wanders after the the first shot and then it sounds like after the second one it can kind of it can kind of hit people hard but yeah i had a little arm soreness of little fatigue but otherwise was good and any um typos or errors you may have seen that i did not catch in uh the positional power rankings well don't be mad i got vaccinated you guys yeah blame them on pfizer moderna or whoever it was pfizer (laughs) but yeah it uh it was good and we have much to do between now and opening day but but real MLB baseball that counts for something is almost back. So it's very exciting. Yeah, good vibes. And good vibes. I hope to follow you in that sometime soon because I will be eligible in New York on Tuesday. So yeah. hopefully Ooh. I will land an appointment sometime soon and then we can be out and about. Out and about, not in the same place, <laughs> but like in our respective places. So that'll be nice. Yeah, as much as I ever am out and about <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so vaccines also relevant to Major League Baseball, which is what this podcast is ostensibly about. So there was some news on Monday that basically if clubs get vaccinated, then they get some privileges. <laughs> they get to hang out with each other. They get to congregate. And it's sort of interesting. So I will read here from one of our upcoming guests articles. Lindsay Adler wrote about this new policy at The Athletic and just quoting from her piece here, Major League Baseball and the Players Association informed teams Monday that clubs that get 85% of their tier one, that's players and staffers with direct contact with players, vaccinated against COVID-19 health and safety protocols for the entire tier will be loosened. Additionally, individuals in Tier 1 who get vaccinated will see their personal protocol restrictions loosened. This directive is meant to serve as an incentive for Tier 1 individuals to get vaccinated early in the season. Many players and staffers throughout MLB have been vaccinated already under eligibility allowances in Florida, Arizona, or their home states. So MLB is not requiring proof of vaccination for players for them to be on the field this year, but they are obviously quite interested in players getting vaccines. And so this is incentive for them to do that. And it's kind of interesting because we know that there are some people and some players who probably would not be inclined to do this. Andrelton Simmons being one, but I'm sure that he is far from the only one. But there's quite a lot of peer pressure, one would yeah. think, for this to happen because if everyone does it or if 85% do it, 
then everyone benefits. So again, continuing from this memo here as quoted by Lindsay, relaxed protocols for vaccinated tier one individuals would include being allowed to work out in ballpark facilities without a face mask, be tested less frequently, gather indoors and on team airplanes and buses with other vaccinated individuals and carpool together or use ride-sharing services. They will also be exempt from quarantining if they are in contact with a person who tests positive for the virus as long as the vaccinated person does not show symptoms. Teams that reach the 85% vaccination threshold will no longer have to wear masks in the dugout or the bullpen or wear a tracking device. Players will be allowed to play video games and other group activities together in the clubhouse again, and they will be allowed to use saunas and steam rooms. And there's more. I think uh, dining indoors is something that they can do once 85% have been vaccinated eating and drinking on flights again, family members staying with tier one individuals on the road. So the list goes on and on. These all sound like good things, things that everyone would want. And so I'm interested to see how the clubhouse dynamics play out over that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that we've started to see more players sort of be be comfortable saying that they think that folks ought to get vaccinated. I know Colin McHugh has said publicly that, you know, there there are people who can't get vaccinated, not as a matter of preference, but as a matter of health reasons. So I think that, you know, he has said that if you can get vaccinated, that he thinks that people should. And so I think that it's starting to move a little bit. And I'm sure that's a combination of um, people who have an earnest desire to see people get vaccinated and for us to be able to, you know, start to loosen things up more generally, and also a desire to be able to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm not an epidemiologist and I will admit to to often being nervous about the loosening of restrictions around COVID because I I just feel like we're at the like the 5 yard line <laughs> and it would be a, a real shame to to fumble the ball just to use a different sports metaphor. But it seems like if you are fully vaccinated and you are not putting other people who are not yet vaccinated in a tricky spot and it does sound like they're trying to keep those loopholes tight right that it is vaccinated people with other vaccinated people Mm -hmm. that this seems mostly reasonable to me even if i am still instinctively like holding tight to restrictions because i know that we're not out of the woods and that there are you know spring breakers and other other bits of silliness and states without mask mandates and all kinds of nonsense going around so i'm trying to have the appropriate amount of concern with stuff like this rather than you know holding too tight to restrictions and this seems fine and if it's a powerful incentive for people to get vaccinated, then I think that that's both important and perhaps a, a good understanding of of how some people are going to think about this, that they might need a carrot, you know, as it were to kind of move mm-hmm. the conversation forward. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, not one that you and I face sort of working from home, right. but something that probably a lot of people will face as they go back to the office if they do. And as we sort of reemerge into society and, you know, decide whom to associate with and, and socialize with. And for baseball players, it's probably an even bigger issue because you're in such close proximity to right. these people for so long and you're traveling together all the time. And so... I mean, it makes a real quality of life difference for not just the individuals, but the teams in this case. And so it's 85% of all players and staff. So if uh, a lot of the staff did it and and maybe the team could exert more pressure on the staffers to, to do this, and maybe they'd be more inclined to anyway, I don't know. But then that could kind of make up for any players who opted not to do it. But 
it's just sort of uh, an interesting social experiment, I guess, because if there are players who wouldn't otherwise do it, will they do it just to be a team player? <laughs> you know, how strongly do they feel about holding out, right? So we'll see how that plays out and, and maybe it'll just go so smoothly that we won't even hear anything about it and yeah. all the players will get to play video games with each other to their <laughs> heart's content, which would be great. But it'd be nice to have these restrictions loosened just you know, for reporters, of course. It's, sure. a, it's a big deal for baseball writers who want to get back in clubhouses again, which has not happened yet, but I know there's a lot of concern among media members that this could become the new permanent state of affairs if it lingers too long and what would be like lost with that lack of access. So let's hope that uh, all of that comes together soon. It's exciting to see that we are this close to that point that we're almost there. So as we speak, I'm, I'm looking forward to one last Shohei Otani spring training <gasps> start. He is uh, starting Monday night against the Dodgers, which will have happened by the time you are all hearing this. So you know more now than I do as I speak, but he is going to be going up against the best team in baseball and hitting and pitching. So looking forward to that. Hopefully that goes well. But other players that I am semi-obsessed with, Williams Astadio made the opening day roster of the Twins. Good news there. We haven't talked a whole lot about Williams lately, but he has made the news in recent days because he made the roster and because he had one of his trademark semi-viral plays where he got thrown out at second base because his momentum carried him too far. He was trying to stretch a single into a double and he got pulled off the base by his own momentum and then uh, <laughs> got tagged out and then he made funny faces as he always does. It's just reliably like whatever he does, it could be the most routine play, but is somehow more watchable than anyone else. And he's been crushing it this spring too, not to an Otani level, but he has been mashing. He is hitting, as we speak, 385, 415, 821. He just hit his fourth homer on Monday, and he styled it. He just walked like halfway down the line and admired it. It was a bomb. And it's not a very Astadio-like line because in 39 at-bats, he has three strikeouts, two walks, and four homers. I mean, by his standards, that's three true outcomes. Like <laughs> 2019, he had 51 spring training at-bats and didn't strike out once and walked one time and hit two homers. So I don't know if this is the the new three true outcomes Astadio, which would be a, a bit disappointing. But whatever, it's working for him, and I'm glad that he will be back in the big leagues. Would you would you really love him less if his profile changed like that? Yeah, <laughs> I gotta say, <laughs> not as a person, but sure. as a statistical curiosity. Like before, we knew how delightful he was just as a presence. We really first got interested in him because he had such anomalous rates and never struck out. So, yeah, that's what makes him such an outlier, or at least one of the things that does. So, I would be sorry if that went away. Who is the most surprising? This is such a mean question because I didn't prep you for it at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. But um, who is the most surprising cut to you this spring? Huh. Well, we're about to talk about one of them with our guest, Jason Mackey. We are, by the way, doing our penultimate preview podcast today. So we're talking to Lindsay Adler about the Yankees and Jason Mackey about the Pirates. And we will talk about Todd Frazier with uh, with Jason not making the Pirates. But I guess semi-surprising, and I don't know how this compares to others because I haven't been tracking every roster move, but seeing that Felix was, I don't know if it's cut loose or just opted to leave the Orioles because he 
wasn't going to make the opening day roster because he's had elbow issues, even though he was looking pretty good before that. Then it seems like it's granted his release, which is the way that these things are worded. I don't know whether he wanted to be released to be free again, like whether they told him you're not going to make the roster even if you're healthy, because if you're Felix and you're trying to find a destination somewhere, there's no better place to be a pitcher who is looking to extend his career than Baltimore. So. I don't know what that means exactly for his prospects or whether that was the Orioles telling him to pack it up or whether he wanted to do that to explore options elsewhere. I just can't imagine there would be a better option elsewhere. Yeah, it it is a little curious. It sort of it did read as him having asked for his release and being mm-hmm. it being granted to him in a way that made me think that he was like, yeah, I'm going to try to ply my wear somewhere else, um, perhaps in the hopes of some other roster that, you know, might find itself in need of pitching help. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I just, I just want to feel happy for Felix. Yeah. I hope he's happy, you know, whatever, whatever it was. I hope that, you know, he's made, he's made a lot of money. He has beautiful family. I hope he's happy wherever he is, but it would be nice to have another year or two where you're like, yeah, Felix, our old friend. Yeah, the part of me that was kind of kicking myself for not taking him in the minor league free agent draft when it looked like he was headed for an opening day roster spot with the Orioles, that part is uh, semi-relieved, but the rest of me that wants Felix to continue his career is disappointed. So we shall see if he catches on somewhere else. It doesn't sound like he'll be back with Baltimore, but I don't know. Did you have one in mind? I I guess Rugnet Odor was one that was uh, making some headlines that he was not going to make the Rangers opening day roster. I was a bit surprised by that, if only because that team is just not projected to be very good. Yeah. Let me tell you, the the consternation around the Rangers and the positional power rankings, it continues. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that one was surprising to me. I think Sixto Sanchez. Yeah, although I can I can appreciate how they needed to they kind of need to build up his mm-hmm. his innings again. So like that one made a bit more sense, but yeah, hmm. I don't know. I asked this question and then I don't have a good answer, which makes it <laughs> um, you know, it's got a hoisted by my own petard kind of vibe to it, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I have one more thing to say about Astadio, which is that he came up in David Loreal's Sunday Notes column at Fangraphs unprompted because David was writing about how you just don't really see third string catchers anymore. And that's probably a product of the fact that teams are carrying so many pitchers all the time that there's just no room for a third string catcher. He mentioned in his piece that Roger LaFrancois was on the Red Sox roster for the entire 1982 season and played eight games, (laughs) which is pretty impressive. Nice work if you can get it, I guess. But David asked Kevin Cash about this and Cash said, it's always in the back of our minds. If we hit for Mike Zanino or he comes out of the game early for whatever reason, we're down to one catcher. Then if something goes sideways, there's that fear of who goes back here in an emergency. I look at a guy like Williams Astadio with the Twins. That's a very valuable player to be able to stick him at third base, put him in right field, and catch him in the back half of the game. So I don't know if this is Jeff Sullivan spamming Ray's slack with news about Williams Estadio <laughs> or what, but Kevin Cash is on board. So I like that. Like, There's so much emphasis on positional flexibility now just because there aren't many roster spots to go around and teams are trying to teach players to play multiple positions and have sort of a positionless baseball and people rotating around. So with Williams, even if he's not elite at any of those positions, if he can handle them competently, I do think that makes him worthy of a roster spot at least. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, like, yeah, I think that do it for the gifts, but really do it for the roster flexibility. <laughs> Yes. And everyone seems to really like him. I mean, not just the fans, but also his teammates. He just kind of draws attention, whatever he does. Rocco Baldelli said, I think most of us feel like a supporting actor in a movie and he's the lead. Good guy to have around for that reason as well. Wait, I came up with an, oh, you have an I answer. I came up with an answer. Okay. I know what the answer is. Okay. Yolmer Sanchez. Oh, who yeah. is playing second base for the Orioles? I mean, I know who we have on the depth chart, but like who, that's an interesting choice. He was making a million dollars. You can't just play, you can't just pay Yulmer Sanchez to like exist on your major league roster. That's my choice, Yulmer yeah. Sanchez. For the Orioles, how many millionaires are there on the Orioles roster this season? It's Probably very grim. Not a whole lot, so... No. Yeah, they picked up Adam Pletko, right? And mm-hmm. then, so no second baseman. That does seem like a problem. <laughs> I mean, someone will play second base, just not someone who has demonstrated the ability to do that previously over a full season. Yep. So I did want to mention, just uh, following up on a couple things that we've talked about before, there was uh, a little bit of news or a revelation about the Tom and Jerry scene, which we haven't talked about for a few weeks, but just one little aspect of that scene, the baseball scene in Tom and Jerry that we broke down in exhaustive detail. One minor complaint we had about that scene was that Jay Happ was on the mound in either a a save situation at Yankee Stadium or just going for the complete game. And it seemed odd to us. This was one of the less strange aspects of that scene, which had so many strange aspects. But the fact that he was on the mound as someone who has never had a save in the regular season or postseason and hasn't pitched a complete game in years and years seemed weird. But someone in the Facebook group pointed out this weekend that Jay Happ saved the 2018 All-Star game. <laughs> so J-Hap actually does have a major league save. He came in in the last inning of the All-Star game. He was on the AL team and he gave up a run, but he got the save. And maybe that was fresh in the minds of some Tom and Jerry producer because the scene that they used in the movie was from a 2018 game at Yankee Stadium. So I don't know. Maybe they just happened to watch the All-Star game and thought, Jay Happ, established closer. Here's the guy who's closing out games for the American League All-Star team. So why wouldn't the Yankees have him on the mound in the ninth inning? So there is some precedent for that. My apologies to the producers of Tom and Jerry. Maybe they were basing it on real life events. No, Ben, absolutely not. There, <laughs> I would bet every dollar to my name that that no one, not a single human person who was not related to a person playing in the game watched the final inning of that all-star game. No, I refuse to believe that people watch that deep into them. Do they really? What was the 2018 all-star game? Was that the one where we, we learned about the bad tweets in real time? Because maybe, oh, maybe we were all I watching that I don't even really remember. One. But... Uh... <laughs> oh, but, maybe I have to take it back. Maybe maybe Josh Hader is making a liar out of me. I don't know. That was a strange experience. Anyway, that's probably not why. It's probably not why. I don't think movie. a single I don't think any I think that that was that one. Okay, so maybe maybe uh maybe they maybe they did. Maybe they did watch. I have no memory of watching J Hap on the mound in that game, but just saying it has happened in a major league game. So it's it's conceivable that he could have been out there, although the play itself that uh, that he was pitching in was not 
a safe situation. So that's taken from actual games. Anyway, just, you know, if we're, if we're going to be harsh, if we're going to call them on their errors, then we have to be diligent about admitting when something has at least some real life analog. And the other thing I wanted to bring up just as a follow-up is that Wally Pip is a great example of uh, a baseball term oh, that yeah. has entered the lexicon based on a team or player in this case. So we talked about a bunch of those in the last couple episodes. And Wally Pip slipped our minds. Pipped, of course, is to be supplanted by someone, take a day off, and have that player take your spot the way that uh, supposedly Lou Gehrig did with Wally Pip. So that's a good one that you still hear, oh, you know, a century or so after that happened. So that's had some staying power. Yeah, that's a really good one. I feel like uh, every time we do a name a thing that's like this, I can just hear the I can hear people banging on the door of our respective offices being like, you've forgotten this, but it's Mm -hmm. delightful because then we get to remember some cool stuff that we'd forgotten in the moment. So yes, people inform us about our oversights very politely. Thanks (laughs) to everyone who has written in about that. Two more brief things. The first is that we talk a lot about movie scenes, baseball scenes in movies and TV shows. We critique those. One thing we don't talk about as often, but is just as fraught, is politicians wading into baseball fandom. That's always a a sticky subject because politicians, you know, either they are not really baseball fans, but they have to make an effort to appear baseball fans, which is always kind of awkward and it just it's never totally authentic or they're just uh, afraid of angering anyone or getting on anyone's bad side. And so they sort of hide their fandom or they try to, you know, appease both sides in a way. And so this is something that came up recently with like Andrew Cuomo wearing a a double-sided mask that had a, a Yankees logo on one side and a Mets logo on another side, which I think a lot of New Yorkers found to be an abomination. But it's one of those cases where you try to please your whole constituency And fandom is just a a case where that doesn't really work that well because uh, most people are not fans of both teams in a city or a state. It it does happen. Maybe they're your favorite AL team or NL team or or whatever, the opposite league, or maybe you hate them because there's a, a rivalry. So no one really likes that. So you think that you're like reaching across the aisle here. You think that you're pleasing the most possible people. But in fact, you're pleasing the fewest possible people, because if you just picked a lane and said, yeah, I'm a fan of this team, then, you know, at least fans of that team would like you and and maybe the others would respect you unless you're, you know, Bill de Blasio, who is a Red Sox fan in New York, which is sort of an untenable position, but not the only source of his unpopularity in in the city. But (laughs) I thought of this because Andrew Yang, who is running for New York mayor, was tweeting about being a Mets fan and, you know, to his credit, he was uh, not pretending to be a fan of both teams or anything. He was tweeting about how the Mets and Yankees were having their home openers and you can buy tickets to both. But then he did say he's a Mets fan and grew up a Mets fan. But then he had this tweet where he said, who is your favorite Met of all time? The first names that come to mind for me are Daryl Strawberry, Mookie Wilson and Keith Hernandez. Also Robin Ventura and John Olrud. So many to choose from. So he was Like basically naming some guys, but naming 
franchise icons yeah like (laughs) really famous players i mean ventura and olrud are not necessarily mets icons but you know famous players in general and then you're talking about strawberry and (laughs) mookie and keith hernandez it's like you know okay i mean yeah those are some famous mets you sure have names of famous mets and so he was kind of getting roasted for this just like in that this seemed inauthentic like i don't think it actually was necessarily like he does seem to be a, a mets fan he professes to have grown up rooting for them so i'm not suggesting that these are the only players he knows or something but it came off that way like when you remember some guys and then the guys you remember are like you know the most famous members of like the last championship team it's like you know you're you're not demonstrating your your credibility i guess but hey maybe those are his actual favorite mets of all time why should he lie anyway this was funny i thought because then less than 20 minutes later he had a follow-up tweet where he says, favorite is subjective, obviously. Three players that disproportionately stick out in my head are Benny Agbayani, <laughs> Andy Chavez, and Wilmer Flores. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you were reading the replies. <laughs> you were looking at your mentions. Everyone was uh, suggesting that you're not a real Mets fan. And then he comes up with Benny Agbayani, Andy Chavez, and Wilmer Flores, just to like demonstrate to everyone. I can remember some guys too. I, I know some other guys. So you know, maybe this was all him, but I'm imagining like uh, Andrew Yang staffers like furiously reading the mentions and oh, we've got to look up some obscure Mets for you to to tweet to seem relatable to real Mets fans. How about Benny Akbayani? You know, <laughs> do you think that a staffer was like, okay, guy, like here's what we gotta do. We gotta we gotta reach out to our favorites on Mets Twitter and be like, who would be a credible name to add here? <laughs> but then disproportionately is what gives the whole game away because a person who's mm. actually had a disproportionate affection for that, that's just not the way you describe that. That's yeah, just, probably not. It's just not the way you do. It's it's you know, it's really shocking to me that Andrew Cuomo would would mess up fandom. He seems to be so popular in every other respect. <laughs> yeah, the politicians I just mentioned are just not the most popular for other reasons, but it is something that when politicians wade into these waters, it's it's a uh, similarly dangerous territory. It's like, you know, when you see them uh, cutting a slice of pizza with a knife or something, right. it's like, "Oh, you just you don't know <laughs> how to do this. This is something you're doing for a photo op." And it's sort of the same sometimes when they bring up baseball or, you know, when they wear multiple hats and try to appeal to everyone. So we are available as consultants uh, to (laughs) politicians who want to seem like knowledgeable baseball fans, as well as TV and movie producers who want to get the baseball right in their projects. I think that um, you know one one tact that that politicians should maybe take is like so like um, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, he went to the University of Washington for undergrad, and then his wife, whose name is Trudy, I believe, went to Washington State for undergrad or grad school or something. So um, you know, there's like there's the Apple Cup every year, and they battle, and and people on the the west side of the state say mean things about people on the east side, and vice versa, and they resolve this possible political tension by being, you know, a house in sort of joking war for a Mm. day. And so what really matters is that you pick your spouses for their political vibe. (laughs) (laughs) I think that on the one hand, yes, call us. But on the other hand, I just would say to voters, like, maybe we should think about what stuff we care about. (laughs) 
Yeah. Because this is probably not the most important of the stuff. And like, I know I'm never going to win the pizza argument with New Yorkers, but it's like, it's fine. Just people should, you know how I feel about food, Ben, which is that you should like the food you like and don't eat dolphins. And other than that, I think it's probably fine. (laughs) The pizza ends up in the same place, however you consume it, however it enters your mouth, right? So, you know, ultimately, uh, there there are more important matters. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess we're available as consultants unless we want to like strictly maintain our, our baseball impartiality or something, want to stay above the fray, don't want to appear to play favorites. But no, I, I think we will entertain any uh, inquiries if you're interested. So Just something to keep in mind if you want to sound like an actual human as you are trying to get people to vote for you. And sports is important. It's like it's pretty important when it comes to that, you know, is this someone you want to have a beer with criterion, which, again, is maybe not the best criterion, but is one that a lot of people find important. And, yeah, I, I guess... Having a, a spouse who or a, a partner who roots for a different team would be good. Or or you could find a running mate, maybe. You know, sure. maybe it's like when when you pick a, a VP who appeals to some other segment of your party or whatever, picks up some crucial electoral votes. It's like, yeah, I'm a Yankees fan, but my running mate, my my deputy mayor will be a Mets fan. And uh, therefore, we will placate everyone. I don't know if it works that way. And their favorite player is Andy Chavez. <laughs> Those are all good semi-obscure Mets. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he picked good ones ultimately. I just, I'm curious about the process that led to that. Last thing I wanted to bring up is that Randy Dobnak signed an extension with the Twins, which was uh, semi-surprising in an interesting way. So Twins uh, signed Randy Dobnak, pitcher, to a five-year extension, five years, $9.25 and it also includes three club option years, so it it could turn out to be like an eight-year, almost $30 million deal. And this is interesting, I think, because Randy Dobnak, not a superstar, excellent story. And maybe all of you know the Randy Dobnak story, but basically rose up from obscurity to be a productive big leaguer and, and land this contract. And, you know, first uh, player to make the majors from his school and then was pitching an indie ball and famously was driving an Uber and then made it to the Twins and has been a pretty good pitcher over the last couple of years. But he is not the type of player that you typically see signing a a multi-year extension or an extension this long. And so that sort of stood out to me because I always remember this article that Sam wrote for BP back in 2013 about the future of contract extensions. And he was trying to think of what are some different ways that teams could go about signing players to extensions because now they're just de rigueur, like it's old hat for players to sign extensions, but maybe teams will keep pushing it and and sign players to new and different types of extensions. So his first suggestion, he had three, was sign earlier extensions. So he suggested maybe you could sign players to extensions who have not even made the majors yet. That happened (laughs) very Mm -hmm. soon after Sam suggested that. He wrote this in 2013. I think it was 2014 when the Astros signed John Singleton to his extension before he made the majors, which didn't work out great in that particular case for the Astros, although extensions tend to work out well for teams. I guess Scott Kingery, another recent example that has not paid off uh, totally for the Phillies yet, even though that was supposedly sort of a, a below market deal when he signed it. But he is someone who did not make the opening day roster if we're talking about late cuts. Oh, yeah, but that one was less surprising though. Which yeah, is I guess own, so. It's own bummer. <laughs> 
So there have been several of that type of extension. And then another one he suggested was sign longer extensions. So just sign players to really long deals. And well, I don't know if the Fernando Tatis Jr. extension is exactly what he had in mind, but that's as long as they come. That's the longest contract we've seen, 14 years. So those things have happened. And then his third one was sign more extensions. So basically sign players who were not stars because so often with extensions, it's star level players. It's like, oh, are they going to lock this guy up because he's going to go to free agency and he's going to be a much coveted player. And you don't often hear about players who are just like middle of the road, like maybe they're average, maybe they're not even average, but they can play some useful role on a big league roster. Sign Williams Astadio to an extension. I mean, that sort of thing just doesn't really happen all that often, I guess, because it's just not as much of a priority. You know, there's more risk that that player won't pan out. There are various reasons why it doesn't happen, but it seems like there are reasons why it should happen as well, why restrict it to only the cream of the crop. So maybe this is not a a unique example, but it's one of those where, you know, when you see a five-year extension, you don't usually see under $10 million for that because it's usually some enormous number. You know, we're all waiting for the Francisco Lindor terms to drop and maybe there will be some other late extensions here and they will probably all be bigger than the Randy Dobnak deal. Lance McCullers, for instance. McCullers signed a five-year extension with the Astros for five years and $85 million. And of course, Dobnak doesn't have a whole lot of service time. He was far from free agency, which is part of why the number is so low. But why not sign Randy Dobnak to an extension while you're at it and have some certainty? Obviously, it's nice for him because he has not had certainty, but could work out for, for both teams. So, you know, expand the definition of an extendable player. I think that that's right. And, you know, I, I like that this deal b- between the the options that it has and the escalators and the contract, like it could be it could end up being for significantly more than $9 million, right? Mm-hmm. If he pitches well and they want to keep him around, I think it can go up to almost 30, um, which, you know, for, as you said, for a guy like him has to feel incredible. I do hope that this, like, th- talking about Randy Dobnak was a lot like when people would be like, this fifth grader organized and <laughs> raised all the money to pay off the lunch fines of her classmates. And right. it's like, this is not a good story. <laughs> right, or yeah, someone has health problems and it's, you know, a GoFundMe or or whatever, and that's nice. But it, it'd be nice if they didn't have to do that, right? Right. It's like I I'm I I'm glad that we are coming together to try to take care of one another in you know a, a difficult world. But also this points to structural problems that are a real bummer. So like him having to drive Uber or Lyft or whatever, you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe if you made more money, it'd be fine. But he he uh you know he has this great story, and now he gets to have financial security that he just really has not had. You know, he's made the major league minimum the last two years, which is not nothing for sure. But like this is, you know, significant money. But yeah, I think that I think that it is possible that front offices are perhaps overly fixated on on accruing additional sunk costs, even if they're minor, because I think that for ownership, once they see like, oh, yeah, we have that guy committed on the roster for the next four years, there's just more friction in moving on from them if, mm-hmm. you know, they get hurt or they underperform or you, you know, you have some other guy you'd rather play instead. And so I 
I would imagine that some of this is that you want, and I'm not saying that this is the right way to think about it. I think that we probably underutilize, you know, you're a good player, but not an amazing one. Here is Mm -hmm. a reasonable amount of money. And then we lock you in and we don't have to worry about that again for a couple of years. I think that that's probably underutilized, but it isn't surprising to me that especially now teams would still want to maintain as much sort of they'd want their rosters to be as frictionless as possible especially because they are going to have guys on their team that they're really just not going to move on from mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know like we could be more imaginative it's like um you know when i was a, a young person we went uh to see lake placid as family and that's a bad movie and my dad made us stay and i you know 20 years later was like you need to learn about sunk costs because like we were (laughs) we were out that ticket money regardless so you know it's okay to move on from stuff that doesn't work uh you don't have to be quite so penny pinching e Mm -hmm. that's not the right way to say that but you know what i'm trying to say yep all right well twins fans will get to enjoy dadnak and his facial hair for years to come (gasps) and yeah it's an unusual profile he does not have the strikeout rate that you expect of pitchers today but he does have great ground ball rates and good control and he's made it work thus far and currently i don't think he's even in the twins rotation he has been and, and will be again probably but i think maybe on the outside looking in right now which makes that even more unusual you know assuming they didn't take him out of the rotation to make this extension easier to sign or something i don't want to get all conspiracy corner about this the twins seem to have uh, handled their players quite well and their other employees but that makes it even more unusual i think that you have someone who might be even pitching in relief and still was signed to an extension so interesting stuff I would imagine, though, that with a rotation that features both J-Hap and Matt Shoemaker, that Randy Dobnak will get some opportunities to start this year. All-star game closer, J-Hap? Is that who you're speaking ill of? (laughs) Uh, If it had been any other year, I could have been so confident. I could have been so confident, but I think that given some of the extracurriculars of that game, that probably more people were tuned in to, to see what was what. Mm-hmm. Could be true. All right. Well, that's all I got, unless uh, you want to plug fan graphs, because I, I know that's something that's happening. Oh, yeah. I should do that. That's a good use of the podcast that we do at <laughs> fangraphs.com. Um, yes, we're in our we're in a spring membership drive right now. So I, I guess the first thing that I would say is that we are so appreciative and grateful that people signed up for memberships in the volume that they did over the last year. Like we would just not exist as a site if it were not for the support that our readers showed over the last year. So this is a really important month for us because of when the pandemic hit and sort of when we started to emphasize membership as a way for us to weather the pandemic. A lot of our existing members renewals happen over the next month. Um, A lot of them happen in the next like week. So if you're already a member of Fangrass, I hope that you'll stick around and renew and keep supporting us. And if you're not an a current member and you're thinking about it and you're trying to decide when, we are going to have some modest membership pricing increases that take effect later in the summer, but they will they will not take effect until June 1st. So if you are an existing member or if you sign up for a membership between now and the 1st, you will not see a increase in your membership price until at least 2023. And the new folks who sign up between now and then will get grandfathered in just like our existing members. If you were once a member and then you canceled and you're thinking about it, take advantage of it now because if you sign up after the first, your membership prices go up uh, slightly because we haven't raised them since we started doing membership and Mm -hmm. that's what we need. 
to grow and sustain the site. And and one thing I will also say about that, because this led to a bit of confusion on Twitter earlier, if you are a member and your membership is set to auto-renew after June 1st, don't worry, your price will also not go up. You know, we're, we're just trying to give people time before we have to increase prices so that you have a chance to get in at a lower subscription rate. We don't do discount sales stuff like a lot of subsites do, which is perfectly a fine way to do things, which is not how we do things. So this is probably like the closest you would get to a discount per se. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're we're hoping to add 2,000 new members um, before the end of April. So that seems like a lot, but when you look at our April 2019 traffic, so like the last normal opening month of the season, it's actually a very, very small percentage of our active users. So we hope if you have the means uh, and you like what we're up to, that you will sign up for a membership and support us. All right. Well, it's a good deal. And yeah, and you just announced what almost a dozen new contributors to the site. So (laughs) there will be plenty of content. Yes, we're really excited. We announced on the Fangraph side our new contributors today, Monday, and I know that the Rotograph side will be announcing their new contributors in the next day or so. So this is what membership goes and helps support, right? It keeps the site running. It allows us to add new features and it allows us to add new voices. So I'm really excited to see what they all do and what we learn from them. And we we wouldn't be able to keep adding staff if it weren't for folks supporting us. So yeah, that's another good reason. Yep. Thanks to everyone who has supported the podcast and progress over the past years. So let us take a quick break here, and then we will talk about the two teams that exchanged Jamison Tyone this offseason. First up, the Yankees with Lindsey Adler, followed by Jason Mackey on the Pirates. All right, we are ready to talk about the New York Yankees, and we are joined as usual by Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for The Athletic. Hello, Lindsay, who is sitting in the press box at Legends Field, right, which you are soon to depart to return to New York for opening day. Yep, I am uh, outside in our auxiliary box watching the grounds crew close out spring training, basically. So we will enjoy the sounds of spring in Florida before you head back to the traffic and the honking and sirens. So... I think last year when we talked to you, we talked a bunch about injuries just because Mm -hmm. that had been such a theme for the Yankees in 2019. And we talked about how they had a new medical staff and we wondered whether they were going to do anything differently. And you said you wanted to know as well, but it was hard to tell because they're very secretive about those things. And they had a lot of injuries last year too, it turns out. And maybe you can give them a pass because everyone had a lot of injuries during the pandemic season. And I guess they've mostly gotten through the spring without any terrible season-ending injuries. They've got a few issues that we can discuss, but have you seen any further changes there? Has the past year given you any insight into what they're doing there, and were the results last season disappointing to them? Yeah, they were definitely unhappy with the way things went last season from a lot of respects. I think the thing is that seeing everybody now, and you know, there's some looser protocols already like I don't know players have talked about how even just being able to do outdoor dining has been a really big boost but seeing how everyone's sort of functioning 
this spring, it just has sort of, it's really made me realize just how sort of miserable last year was overall. Like nobody was happy. They were, they were playing tight. You know, it's just, it was, it was stressful. It was scary and it was just a big adjustment for them. And so seeing them now, like, you know, they're still definitely very weird things. <laughs> they're masked up, you know, they're sort of siloed still, but everyone just looks a lot more chill. It seems like they see a light at the end of the tunnel. So it's one of those things where going through spring training, there are a lot of players and maybe just the team as a whole where I'm like, should I just discard like what I saw in 2020? Like <laughs> what relevance does that have right now? Because I don't know how to, at this point, I don't know how to take anything away from what I saw last year because it was just such a, such a bizarre and upsetting season, I guess. Well, Ben made reference to a couple of the the smaller injuries that are plaguing mm -hmm. them. And I think perhaps the, the most concerning set when you take them in tandem are the injuries they've had to two of their left-handed relievers. So Zach Britton went down, had elbow surgery that will not keep him out the whole year, but will keep him out for a little while. And then we got news just before uh, we started recording that Justin Wilson will also start the year on the injured list. So let's start with what their sort of timeline to return is and then how you think the Yankees will cover some of those uh, left-handed innings when they're not, you know, putting Eroldis Chapman out there to close. Well, Eroldis Chapman has, he has a two-game suspension to serve to start the season from the Mike Rousseau thing. That's so right. <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, left-handed nonsense going on over here. So just Justin Wilson, he, he had just, I guess, shoulder tightness, but it seems like it's fine now. They're just starting him on the injured list just because he hasn't pitched in a few days or whatever. I think today was the first day he was able to get off the mound. So they just haven't really had a chance to build him up. So it seems like if everything goes well with his buildup, that can be a pretty short-term thing. And then, you know, Cashman said that late May or June is, is a good target for Zach Britton, which seems seems fine. I mean, I guess we're what, like three or so weeks out from his surgery. He'll need about six weeks before he can start throwing again if, if things go to plan. So it's, you know, they haven't necessarily set their opening day roster. Cashman said that Mike King will, will start the season with the team, not a left-hander, but then there's probably one more bullpen spot that's up for grabs. And I mean, if you ask the Yankees fans, and honestly, if you ask me, I would think that it would be Lucas Lickie, who hasn't pitched in the majors since 2015 who has just looked really good this spring. Like he just has very good stuff. So that would honestly be pretty cool. I mean, he's left-handed, but also it's a long time to work on a, on a comeback to, to the major league level, which would be pretty fun to see. So you could tell that Yankees fans have been through injury problems before because there was a bit of a scare on Monday <laughs> where Brian Cashman did the Zoom instead of Aaron Boone and Aaron Judge hasn't played for a couple of days. And so everyone was expecting the worst, but apparently it's just a pollen problem and <laughs> everyone's fine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so that's good news. And it would really be fun to get to see Stanton and Judge just actually mash all season. Like they only have to play like, five games a piece to have the hardest hit balls of the year basically but to see them do that all year would be a lot of fun and we just haven't seen it and the Yankees have been a better team when both of those guys have been on the field they just haven't overlapped a whole lot so for now they're okay I guess so as long as that's the case how do you see the outfield picture shaping up because 
you've got a bunch of outfielders or potential outfielders on the bench who have had more prominent roles. You've got Clint Frazier ready to really take over left field, but Gardner's back and Talkman and Wade and all these guys are still in the mix. So barring injury, which we can just pretend that that won't happen again, how will the playing time be distributed? Yeah, I mean, to start, you have Clinton left, Hicks in center, Judge in right field, and then Stanton, they said that they were going to have him do some work in the outfield this spring, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So slot him in for, for DH again. You know, one of the big things in the offseason, Gardner's contract was up. Didn't really know what the deal was with, with Talkman and Wade. They signed Jay Bruce to a minor league deal with, a, with an invite to major league spring training. I was like, where are they going to find a left-hander? You know, like you, the most that you could really envision at that point in a, in a starting lineup was Aaron Hicks, a switch hitter. So, you know, the Yankees, they, they love their variety of lineups. So I imagine that there'll be a lot of shuffling. I mean, it's good for them that both Gardner and Talkman can, can cover center. And I think that there will be you know, a bit of a rotation, because I think as much as we've talked about being worried about, you know, how many innings pitchers are pitching this year after last season, like the Yankees like to be pretty, pretty judicious with rest. They like to give guys days, you know, once a week or something like that. So I think Gardner will have a fair bit of playing time. But yeah, it's, you know, it's all things, it's all things go for for Clint as the starter in left field, finally. We've brought up Judge and Stanton. I don't want to trot out another best shape of their life uh, narrative, and it seems silly to do with two guys who are shaped like demigods, but <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about sort of, they, they made some changes to their off-season training regimen. I wonder if you could talk about sort of how they've looked in spring and whether you think this really will be the season where they can, you know, both stay on the field and healthy the whole time. When I wrote my DH blurbs for our positional power rankings, I went through and was looking at the, the max exit velo balls that were hit every year and stands right up there at the top but you have to drop the batted ball event threshold down for most of his yankees tenure to see it because he's just been hurt so much so uh, as an add-on to the outfield question is this is this the year for health for them so the yankees hired eric cressy before the 2020 season and Giancarlo got hurt pretty quickly in spring training and then judge he didn't get into a game in spring training because he had that upper rib fracture so John Carlos started working with Cressy after that spring training injury. So we're, you know, about a year or so out or close to it. And I think that's the thing, you know, they, they were both injured last year, soft tissue injuries. If I remember correctly, I can no longer keep track, you know, and it's like, well, they brought in this new training staff, what the hell is going on? But it's like, these are, I mean, guys of of that size, it's it's turning a big boat around in terms of training, I think. And so... (laughs) Yeah, they've, they've really worked on a lot of flexibility and mobility. And, you know, I really do feel like I can sort of see it in a, in a visible sense with Stan. You know, he just looks more comfortable. He looks more loose. You know, watching him run out, you know, a single or a double, it looks comfortable. I've noticed, you know, my brain's sort of instant reaction is to be like, oh, no, is this going to be bad? And he's he's looked good and he's looked good at the plate. And that I think is a pretty good sign. And I think, yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, having both of them in the lineup, it's, it's not just fun, it's impactful, but really the thing is like, they only need one of them in the lineup for, for it to be really impactful. The, the big issues have really been when, when neither of them are playing or when, 
you know, one of them is in the lineup, but still sort of nursing an injury or the, or one of them is in the lineup, they're still sort of hurt. That's, we just haven't seen them really at their peak potential, either, you know, alone or together very often. And I think, I think that's something that I'm really looking to see this year. I think, I think while judge is, he, he changes the way that pitchers pitch to them. You know, you put him in the two hole, he wears pitchers down. Judge is like wearing a pitcher down and Stanton, I think is like the dude who brings like out a knife. It's just, <laughs> it, it, I, people, people look at them as very similar because they're big, enormous dudes who smash enormous home runs. But for as infrequently as we've seen them play together, I mean, I almost see them as, as different as DJ LeMayhew and Aaron Judge or someone like that, or like Aaron Hicks and Aaron Judge. It's, they are categorically similar, but they bring different threats to the plate. You know, if they're in there and they're performing well, it's, it's going to be a tough one for pitchers because you can't just, you can't just pitch around them. I believe in all the big boats. They can all be free this week. They can all go on their way. Speaking of other big boys who hit big home runs, Luke Voigt is one of the injured players. How long is he expected to be out? And what would his return do to the roster in the positional logjam that we were just talking about? Because, of course, Jay Bruce is a new addition here. And I could totally imagine Jay Bruce having one of those like weird late career Yankees veteran pickup Yankee Stadium hits 35 home runs out of nowhere deals. I guess it wouldn't be out of nowhere. He's done that before, but not in a while. So if Voigt returns, then how does he fit into the roster and who would be the person to lose out? Yeah, Voigt, I think, is due back or he's he's undergoing surgery Monday, I believe you know, one potential timeline for him is maybe to return late April, early May. It's the partially torn meniscus. So I'm I'm not sure on the timeline necessarily, but it he should be back before Zach Britton say. And Brian Cashman said today, he's like, I, I want to have a problem. You know, I, I want to have a tough choice when they come back. And I think it's, you know, like I said, like the, the, the starting lineup is so right-handed that having Jay Bruce and being able to put them in the lineup, basically, you know, you stack them, you try to break up the righties as best as you can with the two of those. I think it's, I think it's a benefit. And I don't really know what Jay Bruce will be like at the, at that ballpark. Like he hasn't really had great success there over the course of his career, but also his career has been long. He's mostly been in the national league. It's pretty easy to envision him really bringing that, that left-handed power. And that, I mean, that's really beneficial especially at that ballpark so it's pretty interesting and you know Jay Jay said that he didn't just sign with the Yankees because they gave him a deal he he chose the Yankees because he hasn't had a chance to win and he he feels that this is the best place to do it and so he's pretty he's pretty all in on you know really becoming Jay Bruce memorable Yankee which might be weird for some fans in other markets I think (laughs) can't believe I'm going to have to continue to grapple with Jay Bruce being younger than I am. It's just like a really cruel thing that baseball does to me every season. <laughs> Gary Sanchez had a 2020 I'm sure he would rather forget. He actually did improve defensively. He wasn't sterling by any means, but his framing did improve to being just slightly below average rather than being pretty bad. But things really fell apart for him at the plate. He struck out 36% of the time. Like the 
power wasn't there. He had a 68 WRC+. I feel like we're getting farther and farther away from the version of Sanchez that was so mesmerizing and intimidating in his first full season. But I'm curious, sort of this spring, what adjustments he's tried to make and whether the club is getting frustrated or impatient because they certainly have enough big bats in the lineup (laughs) that if Sanchez isn't hitting, it's not a deal breaker for them. But he's also not you know, formidable from a defensive perspective. So what is he trying to fix and what do you think sort of the long-term outlook is for him as a Yankee? Yeah, so he's sort of, he started out hot in spring and then very much cooled down, but I just, I refuse to really read into spring training. But a big thing last year was just, he, he was very overwhelmed. He had a new catching coach, he had a new catching stance. And Gary, I think he's going to be a very cyclical hitter. He's not going to be your DJ LeMahieu. You're going to get your slumps and you're going to get your just Gary Sanchez, just like slamming home runs every night streaks. And I think, I think he's okay with that because ultimately if you have a slump, it's a long season and you have, you have time to turn that around. And last year he didn't have that time. He, you know, he started out cold and then it was like, there was this timer on the season. You know, it's, it's each week brings you each week of your slump brings you you know that much more just anxiety about ultimately having a good season and it was just it just was not a good season for him overall not even just at the plate but just in like trying to figure out like okay who is Gary Sanchez and he's been really amenable to things like new catching coaches to all sorts of things and I think Gary needed to sort of be like wait a second I am Gary Sanchez I think he I think he really lost that so Brian Cashman has talked a bit about how, you know, after the season, they, because after the season, Cashman was like, we asked Cashman if Gary was his starting catcher. And he was like, we'll see, which was pretty wild because they really stood by him. But then over the off season, they had a number of conversations between Gary, between the club, Gary and Tanner Swanson, the catching coach, where they really sort of just like hammered things out. There had been, I think, this tension from maybe Gary's frustration with always feeling like he had to like try something new, try something new. And, you know, the club feeling like, well, we're just really not getting Gary Sanchez. So indications are they've worked out a lot of that stuff and that Gary is sort of more in a better position to say, this is what works for me. And he, he seemed pretty chill this spring. He said Monday that he thinks that this is the best spring that he's had. I think I think he said that from a defensive standpoint, but you know, if you think about it, like a couple of years ago, every spring was a narrative of like, is Gary in shape or not? Like he was the, is Gary in the best shape of his life guy. And like this year he looks, you know, he looks great. He looks the same as he did last year. And, you know, we're not even really thinking about it. So he, he's a really tough one. He's a really tough one. I think Yankees fans should have, do have reason for optimism that he'll have a good season. But I think also there just needs to be this broad acceptance that like, he's just not going to be your, you know, 300 average hitter. He's, you know, Luke Voigt likes to have a fairly high batting average in, in, in addition to his slugging percentage. And Gary's probably just not going to be that. And so writing through those, those ups and downs is really, I think, going to be the key to enjoying Gary Sanchez if he performs to his and the Yankees' potential expectations. So I can't believe we've been talking about injury risk all this time, and we haven't even brought up the rotation yet. (laughs) So 
that's an area where there seem to be pretty big error bars when it comes to projecting what this group will do. According to the Fangraphs depth charts, the Yankees have the best projected starting rotation in the American League behind Ooh. only the Dodgers and the Padres in the major leagues. But pretty much everyone behind Garrett Cole comes with some kind of question when it comes to durability. Is the strategy just collect as many of these question marks as possible and hope that if you lose a couple along the way, you still have enough left. And I guess Luis Severino is now, what, 13 months or so past mm-hmm. his Tommy John surgery. So, yeah, how does this shake out, I guess? And how many starters do you think the Yankees will end up having to use this season? Oh, I think they're planning on using a lot. You know, Garrett Cole threw 73 innings. I think Jordan Montgomery threw, I think, 44 last year. And then between everyone else, you're just not really getting that much playing time. Domingo Herman, Corey Kluber, Jamison Tyone. So yeah, it's it's really hard for me to know. But it's also a season where really no one's going to be pitching 200 innings. Like Garrett might, and he may, if he does, he'll be one of like, what, six starting pitchers in baseball who throws 200 innings. So yeah, it's it's really hard for me to read because Jamison Tyone, they're they're sort of slow playing him to start the season. They're going to go once through Cole, Kluber, Herman, Montgomery, then back to Cole, and then back to Tyone. So I don't know. I, I don't know because Tyone has had two Tommy John surgeries, which is obviously a huge concern, but also he has been very clear that he feels much better after the second surgery and that his new mechanics with the shortened arm action will protect him and he feels much more comfortable. And then Kluber is really hard for me to read because he normally builds up pretty slow and, and doesn't really settle into being Corey Kluber until May. And he's, you know, with, with a finesse guy, like, I think he might just need a little bit more time on the mound. So, yeah, Aaron Boone's been pretty, like, explicit. You know, questions came up, you know, like, Aaron, who was your fifth starter? And he's like, he basically said, like, that's a false concept at this point. Like, now they will carry Domingo Herman as their is the fifth starter that we know that they'll carry to start the season, but Davey Garcia will get a lot of playing time. And Michael King said that his goal for the season is to pitch a hundred innings wherever anyone needs him. He sort of sees himself as like the, the patchwork guy, understanding that there are a lot of guys with injuries or who didn't pitch a lot last year. So he's willing to start, relieve, piggyback, whatever. So I think Yankees fans understandably really want to see a very good rotation. This is more of a collective effort, I would say. It's it's going to be like a a big group of people making starts for for the Yankees this year, which I think is which I think tracks from an from an injury and an and a usage standpoint. Yeah, you mentioned Tyone's new mechanics. I don't know whether you've had a chance to go in depth with him on that, but I know that that's something that Travis Sachik has paid a lot of attention to, this arm circle or elbow <laughs> spiral, as it's called, which is something that guys like Lucas Giolito and mm-hmm. Bauer and Bieber and others have adopted. Are you familiar enough with the concept to sort of explain why it works or, or why it's catching on? I'm familiar enough to know that a lot of guys are adopting it. Mm-hmm. I have asked Tyone sort of who helped him think that through. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was able to start, you know, getting off the mound when he was with the Pirates at the end of last season. So he's, I mean, he's pretty far out from his Tommy John surgery, which I think is another thing to keep in mind. And I believe that he said that he may have started tinkering with it there. And then he did some work in Florida 
I believe he may have spoken with Lucas Giolito. It's pretty interesting. It's like, it's weird to sort of see the start of, of a wave, you know, a wave of mechanical changes, because when you've got Giolito, Bauer, Tyone, you've got all these guys like looking at changing their arm action, it, it's going to spread. You know, we've seen the one knee down catching stance that Gary Sanchez is doing. That's the Red Sox mm-hmm. are doing it now. So if it if it helps prevent injury, you know, I, I hope that's the case. Like that's that's great. But like aesthetically, like I don't like it. So I'm a little <laughs> bit torn. Like I want guys to protect their elbows, but also like, I don't know. I got to watch James Paxton who has like a ridiculous wingspan, you know, and he's just got like full extension. And I'm like, dang. That's like, that's like more of my aesthetic, like pitching vibe. So I think it'll be really interesting. And I'm really interested to learn more about it as Tyone pitches this season, for sure. I want to pop back to the position players and talk about LeMayu, who you brought up and obviously signed that six-year deal with the Yankees to stay in the Bronx for a long, long time. And I don't want to really make anything of his 2020. It was sort of typically excellent. He he was more productive at the plate, but again, it was only 50 games. He also somehow, I'm just noticing this now, managed to not hit a single infield fly ball, which is just a fun bit of... Uh, trivia for for the LeMahieu heads out there. But I noticed that there were some reports out of spring that he might move around the diamonds a little bit, seeing time at, at first and third. I'm curious if that ended up coming to pass and what you think that might mean in terms of how the Yankees could move guys around on the infield this coming season. Yeah, it's, I mean, DJ is capable of playing either. You know, I think with, with Voight out, you know, Bruce will get playing time, but it's pretty easy to slot DJ over there and then, you know, put Tyler Wade at second. It's pretty easy to, DJ's like so, I mean, it's weird. Like he's, he's just like, he looks so tall as a third baseman to me, but he's, I don't know. He's just like sure-handed. He's, he's pretty easy. You know, second base is obviously his most comfortable position, but we've seen him, you know, take some time at first and third over the last couple of seasons. And that was actually what the Yankees asked of him when they signed him. They were like, you know, we don't have an everyday position for you, but if you come here, we will find you playing time. We have three positions you can play in DH. We will find you at bats. And then oh, he wound up being their starting second baseman. But it is kind of interesting because Aaron Boone said yesterday that there was like, you know, they weren't quite sure what they were going to do with that final bench spot. And uh, it didn't, seem clear if Tyler Wade would be that guy. And we had seen them have Gio Urshela take some reps at shortstop. He's, I don't know, Gio jumping in at shortstop doesn't seem like it's any issue at all. So I do wonder sort of how much infield shuffling there might be. Would it make sense to give Glaber Day off and slide Gio over to short just for a one-off and then put Tyler Wade at second and DJ at third? I don't know. Is that, you know, uh, making an unnecessary complication of, of the infield? I also don't know. But it's a long season, and it's pretty clear that they're looking at positional flexibility for, you know, a few guys. You, the Yankees, I think, have learned over the last few years that you never know what's, <laughs> what's going to come up. So are they hoping for something from Severino this season, expecting something from Severino? Where is he in his rehab process? So I believe he's throwing off the mound. We haven't talked to him since early in spring, but it seems like he's doing well. The reports have been good. I think, I believe Brian Cashman said maybe mid-summer, late summer. You know, my thing for Severino is 
people are going to want him to come back and just be Luis Severino, but it's hard to come back to Tom for, from Tommy John surgery, like that late into the year. And, and, and I think the Yankees will be pretty careful with him. So I'm worried that Severino is going to come back, you know, until he'll, he'll build up, he'll be fine. But you know, if, if he's shaky, if he's not necessarily fully comfortable airing it out uh, when he's actually in a game situation and what that might look like. I'm not sure what to expect from him, but like I'm trying to be cautious about it because it's I think we tend to forget how intrusive this surgery is. But um, yeah, it'll it'll be excitement. It'll be exciting, I think, for the Yankees. And I'm sure that we will hear throughout the summer, you know, Luis Severino is like our deadline edition or whatever. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to sort of see how they use their starters after that, especially because I think most of their off days are sort of packed early in the season. So Cole will not have a start skipped at any point if they have too many starters, if they have the luxury of having too many starters. But yeah, they're just going to, I mean, I, I think, I think Severino will feel good to go, but yeah, still, still a ways off on that. The Yankees last year tailored their alt site group to guys who could provide big league depth, which given some of the injuries we talked about isn't surprising. And they also didn't hold stateside instructs. So their plan for, or at least what we were able to see of their plan for their prospects was a little bit different than for most other clubs. I'm curious what approach they took to keeping their prospects, especially the guys who weren't at the alt site or at instructs in the US. I know they did some workouts in the DR, but for the guys who were at home, how did they guide their development last year so that they didn't end up with 2020 as a totally lost season? Yeah, so they sort of early in the shutdown, I believe they started thinking about like, you know, which guys live in which common regional areas. So they sort of looked at it and they were like, well, you know, once it was a little bit safer for once we knew it was safe for people to be outside, it was like, okay, well, you live in Nashville, you're a pitcher. You know, we have this, you know, catcher who lives outside of Nashville or whatever it is. And so a lot of guys definitely were able to, to work together throughout that time. And so the Yankees kept pretty good tabs on it. They, you know, if I remember correctly, they had big spreadsheets or whatever. And the answer I've been given about instructs is that given that they did feel that they had been able to keep guys on good individualized routines and they felt like they were getting honest, consistent information from their, from their minor leaguers about where they were at, they felt that, you know, sort of bringing them in, putting everybody at more of a COVID risk, putting them up in hotels and then having, you know, instructs and then sending them back to their hometowns would be sort of, you know, maybe a little bit more than they needed to do. To me, I I don't, I don't know. Uh, You know, I think they were what, maybe the only or maybe one of two teams that did not have stateside instructs. So yeah, yeah, their, their minor leaguers reported, their, their American minor leaguers reported Sunday, their players from the Dominican Republic, I think, reported a little bit earlier. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) player development they were they were hosting the the Yankees pitchers for pretty much all of spring they they split up spring and so player development is going from hosting half of the Yankees spring training and now jumping straight into trying to figure out like where all of these guys are at so it's um April is not I'm glad that I'm not a farm director or you know (laughs) field coordinator in in April by any means as far as you can tell, has the clubhouse come to terms with Domingo Herman's return to the team after his domestic violence suspension? Because 
That was a source of some controversy early in the spring. Zach Britton, for one, was more vocal about his disapproval of Vermont's actions than players often are when they have to share a clubhouse with someone. So what do you know about how they tried to smooth that over and where things stand? You know, we haven't really heard much about that. You know, everyone's answer has sort of been, you know, we said what we said. We have, you know, once once Domingo addressed his teammates directly, they sort of put it behind them, at least publicly. Mm-hmm. Luke Voigt, I thought was, you know, Zach, I think Zach sort of like broke the seal. You know, you really don't hear players say that about teammates, even when it does make them uncomfortable. Players just don't really say anything publicly about clubhouse tension in that way. So, but I thought Luke Voigt, who is, you know, usually pretty thoughtful about most things, everything. He was really thoughtful about it. He he said that Domingo was on thin ice and that he doesn't condone it. You know, the other players don't condone it. But one thing he said was, you know, we we said like, you know, this is not okay. But if you are feeling down, if you are feeling in a in a in a bad position in the future, like we want you to come to us. You know, we they Luke's impression was sort of that they didn't they don't want to seem like they are like ostracizing him because then you're just putting him on an island and you know if tough times come up if he feels frustrated if he feels upset whatever it may be um they want him to feel like he has people to turn to which i think is which i think is an important thing that really does get sort of overlooked whenever we talk about domestic violence in baseball which is nuanced and fraught and there are no real good answers but yeah, I mean, the thing was, it was Domingo did not have a spot guaranteed this spring. And I mean, if if he had pitched really poorly, yeah, I, I think they probably would have sent him to the alternate site. He has another, you know, option year remaining because it, it has been a long time since he pitched. So I really thought that we would see him looking pretty rusty, but he's looked very good. You know, from a pitching perspective, he's definitely earned his way on to the team and it's 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 one of those things. There are no good answers, and it's 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 pretty it's uncomfortable to see. You know, I understand a lot of people don't like having to to watch someone who has been suspended under those under those conditions. But for the most part, things are at least on the surface just rolling, I guess. And how has Aaron Boone been after his own health scare this spring? Man, we learned a lot that day. <laughs> I missed my flight. And we all learned a lot that day. Um, <laughs> science is like amazing. Science is amazing. My ability to get to the airport on time after news is not amazing. But yeah, you know, they 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 sent out this release and it's like Aaron Boone, who's 48 or so, he's a pacemaker. We, we knew about his heart issues. You know, he's always sort of known that this day would come, but it's really scary. But then Brian Cashman gets on Zoom and he's like, you know, I was like, you guys, I was like WebMDing it. I was, you know, really, really concerned. But then Boone called him and told him like, actually like advancements make this basically an outpatient procedure. And so we're all sitting there on Zoom watching Cashman be like, I don't know, man. He he said that like, actually this is like minimally invasive. And then we learn a little bit more about it. And then Boone is like back after a couple days. And we're like, holy crap, pacemaker insertion really is minimally, minimally invasive at this point, but he had been feeling really, I think, short of breath. I think he said something about like not really having a lot of stamina for a couple of months. And so he said that pretty much like immediately after he was discharged from the hospital, he just started to feel better in a way that's like, I think it had been, he hadn't realized how bad he felt. And so 
yeah, he <laughs> he seems to just feel a lot a lot better than he did in in early spring and late into the off season. So it's good to see. But yeah, it uh, scared the crap out of all of us for sure. <laughs> So last thing I think before we ask you for a prediction is about Davey Garcia. So we mentioned the injury risks in the rotation. It's pretty good to have someone like Garcia in reserve and he's not going to be on the opening day roster, right? And so this is someone who was, you know, pitching playoff innings last year when the Yankees staff was depleted. Is he definitely going to stay a starter? Would there be any consideration to using him in relief if the Yankees rotation is fully staffed? And when would you expect him to be back up? And what are the hopes for him long term? Yeah, you know, Aaron Boone has said that they're pretty determined to keep him stretched out. I think they, you know, they could have put him in the bullpen to start the season, but they're sending him to the alternate site. I think they'll need a sixth starter, I think think at the end of April. Um, so, I mean, we should see Davey back pretty quickly. You know, I think it's hard to remember because Davey just like, he's, he's really composed. It's hard to remember that he is, I think, 21. So he made a lot of good progress at the alternate site last year, working with um, their director of pitching, Sam Breen. They're, they're very close. They made some changes last year, you know, where Davey was standing on the rubber. They've worked, you know, his his curveball is obviously his calling card, but they're, you know, working on the shape of some of his other pitches. And so while a lot of fans obviously really wanted to see Davey on the opening day roster, like he's 21, he's still in development. There are things that he can work on in sort of this lab-ish like environment of the alternate site. So it doesn't seem to me like it's that. <laughs> like it's that bad of a turn of events for the Yankees or for Davey. But yeah, I mean, it, I think we'll see him quite a bit this year. And the Yankees seem to, I mean, he's hes made friends very easily, I will say. People really enjoy seeing just how sort of, he's just, he's composed beyond his years. And so I think it can still be a really good season for Davey. You know, I think he will still get a lot of playing time and I think they want that. So I'm excited to see where it goes. You know, I find him fun to watch. I mm-hmm. I am always sort of partial to short pitchers because they're the only people who sort of look like me. Um, <laughs> like That's as close as I can get. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not 21 by any means, but yeah, he'll he'll be around. I think he'll be around a lot. His relationship with Eric Kratz last year was maybe one of my favorite parts <laughs> oh, yes. of the 2020 season. Same. It was just like Same. in a bad year, a beautiful, heartwarming, very genuine, just nice thing to be able to watch. So, yeah. You like short pitchers. You like giant pitchers with huge wingspans. You're <laughs> a person of contradictions. You like everyone. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> they they pitch well. If they make games easy to write about, whatever, whoever it is, I don't care. <laughs> So it is that time again when we have to ask you how many games the Yankees will win this season. Nope. Nope. No, I'm not doing it. Do I have to do it? I mean, I don't know. There's a tremendous pressure here as uh, the only effectively wild guest who has refused, but I can't compel you. What about this makes sense? I guess, what, <laughs> 105 in 2019 and then all and of their players right. get injured and then I'm almost right? <laughs> Yep. Like, I, I don't, what, so, so now this team is probably, this team is better uh, if they mm-hmm. play toward expectations. This team is better than any other Yankees team I've covered. Gotta go higher. 105. I, <laughs> especially after 60 game season, 105 seems so high. <laughs> 
I'm going 101. I'm doing, okay. I'm going to go Price is Right. I'm going with 101. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it makes sense to be conservative, I think, when it comes to projections. And really conservative, 101. That's uh, that's not very conservative, really. <laughs> that's right. higher than any projection system would tell you. So. Really? Oh, I, I think probably it, right. Damn it, ben. <laughs> we we right. have them projected for ninety five in a in oh. a competitive East, so hmm. at least as far as the Blue Jays are concerned, and those sneaky rays, you never know with them. Okay, then I guess I'm going the other prices right direction. <laughs> cool. <laughs> You've whipped, up, whipped up to your reputation for going for it. Triple digits, Adler every season. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, you can read Lindsay, of course, at The Athletic, where she writes about the Yankees and also sometimes baseball in general. You can find her on Twitter at Lindsay Adler. Thank you, as always. And we hope you have a safe flight home. Thank you, guys. I hope I make this one. (laughs) All right. We'll take one more quick break and we'll be back with Jason Mackey to talk about the Pirates. Fading in and out of consciousness With a fedigree of common sense on your mind just watch it all unwind. The voice is low. Slow down. Bounce around. Bounce around. The voice is low. Slow down. All right, we're back, and it's time to talk pirates with Jason Mackey, who covers Pirates for the Post-Gazette. Hello, Jason. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me once again. It's a pleasure. So big picture, I guess we can start here, not to be too much of a downer, but the Pirates went 19-41 and last year, worst record in baseball. That is your basic 51-win pace over a 162-game season. And then they spent much of the winter offloading veterans and trading them or letting them leave Joe Musgrove, Josh Bell, Trevor Williams, Chris Archer, Jameson Tyon. So we've been getting some emails from depressed Pirates fans, as you may imagine. So not that it is your job to cheer up Pirates fans, but if we are going to turn this into a little counseling session, what are the things to look forward to if there are any? Or at least can we say that this is part of a plan, that uh, this is leading to some sort of purpose? Yeah, I, I feel like half of my job is a professional counseling session and <laughs> <laughs> professional email answer or whatever. But I know what you're saying, and I know what Pirates fans sort of want to look at. You want to feel like, it is this going somewhere? Um, and I think that's kind of what I have taken away from this offseason and what I feel about the team right now is that it is, that they do have a coherent direction where I don't think you could say that over the past four years or whatever. They're kind of treading water and and looking back on it like they're just trying to patch holes and doing it incorrectly. We've seen a lot from Ben Charrington so far in his first year, and I think he's been really good. I like a lot of the moves he's made. I like the way he drafted. I like what he did internationally. I think he's got the right temperament for this sort of thing. You know, it's it's not pleasant in Pittsburgh right now. People are upset, clearly. But there's a coherent plan to target young, high upside guys, hopefully develop them the right way. And then in, I don't know, two, three years optimistically to come out of this and be competitive again. 
I want to ask about some of the the young prospects that they have because, you know, the big league roster is what it is and we'll turn to it in a second. But for an organization like this that is trying to develop its way, draft its way out of the, the sort of nadir that they found themselves in, I would imagine that a year like 2020 is particularly concerning because you you lose a minor league season. You lose sort of the traditional developmental tools that you have as an organization. So what was Pittsburgh's approach to navigating the lost 2020 for their guys? I mean, I know some of them got time at the alternate site and they had instructs, but especially for the guys who are at home, what approach did they take? Yeah, and you're right. This is actually something I talked to owner Bob Nutting about last week, just about how bad no minor league season was for the Pirates compared to other teams. I, I think it is absolutely more costly for them and I'm not alone. So what they did, you know, and I would imagine this is similar to what a lot of teams did, but you try to send your guys home with some sort of plan for spring training. You try to establish one staff or maybe multiple staffers in the organization and try to reach these guys and find out what do you have? What do you have access to? What can you do? And try to get them as much help and, and work as possible. And some guys I think had it really good, had a solid setup. Like I remember talking to you know, Adam Frazier, Jacob Stalling, some of those guys, like they had their own little click around Nashville and they got work in. They got to hit live pitching and, and whatever. And I, I think other guys weren't so fortunate. And, you know, just as far as bringing guys forward and making sure that things were done, I, I do think the Pirates did a good job at their developmental site, alternate site. Um, they did, they focus a lot on individual skill work, uh, played as many games as possible. Again, I think this is stuff that's probably fairly common across the board, but what can you do, right? Like, I, I don't think they are in a different boat than any other organization. I just think it affects them more because they, all they have is development. They don't have a bunch sure. of free agent spending possibilities. Well, from what you can tell, which I know is probably tough from afar, with the hiring of Charrington, with the addition of John Baker as farm director in November, have you seen changes either in philosophy or technology, whatever it may be? It, it seemed clear that this change in leadership was made because there was a lot of frustration about the Pirates in recent years failing to develop their own players, having their own players often go to other teams and start excelling there. So they've brought in this player development centric crew. Have you been able to tell that they have modernized or changed their approach in some way? In a few ways, yes. One thing that bugged the Pirates a lot, and, you know, if you ever give Garrett Cole truth serum, I'd be willing to bet that he would tell you this, is how analytically driven their pitching program was, i.e. it was not. Um, it was in the Stone Age. And so they've made strides with that in terms of modernizing it, using more, you know, Rapsodo and Edgetronic cameras and, and this, that, and the other. I remember talking to guys last year, and we might have even talked about this on the pod, about you know, they would have data. They didn't know what it meant. And they didn't really have anybody before that was able to decipher some of this data and explain to them, like, why it was meaningful. Nobody around the Pirates could tell you, hey, man, when you have a 1-1 one, one count, you throw your slider low and away, man. That really stacks the odds in your favor. Like, they didn't have anybody sort of translating this mountain of information into usable stuff. And so that's one of the things that the new group has come in and done. But, you know, you mentioned Baker, and he's really been, I think, a, a big thing for this team. Um, and not only, you know, are we talking about, like, actually applying information to the major league club, but more just getting through to prospects. I think the former regime was way too rigid with stuff, and they would they tried to 
make everybody the same. They try to treat Tyler Glass now the same they would other pitchers. They tried to treat Austin Meadows the same they would other outfielders, and it blew up in their face. And I don't think they're going to do that again. I don't think that's how John Baker thinks of it. You know, he's very into mental skills. Forget, I think it was, it might have been Nick Gonzalez, their number one pick, was talking about a lot of the, you know, mental stuff that they do the other day and the, the focus on that and how much he feels like that's helped them. And so they are, you know, focusing more on mentality, being open-minded, being flexible, not treating everybody the same. So I, there have been changes. I'll be really curious in a couple of years to see how they translate to, you know, moving up minor league levels and actually experiencing success with them. I guess on the back of that, I'm going to ask you a wildly unfair question, which is that Pittsburgh quite famously has the number one pick in this coming July's draft. And uh, I, I wonder if your read on them at this point is that they will just take the best player available, look to perhaps either of the Vandy pitchers who are being so impressive, or if they might uh, zig a little bit. <laughs> That's a kind way to put it. <laughs> it, it <laughs> like, that was the most politically correct way of being cheap you could ever do. I don't think they're going to zig. Um, okay, I don't think they're going cheap. I really do think they're going to take rocker or lighter. Or I, I don't, I, you know, I can't predict the future, so maybe someone else is better than them, although that looks darn near impossible right now. Um, that was another thing that came out of my interview with Bob Nutting. I just asked him flat out, like, do you anticipate taking the best player available? He said, absolutely, signability will not be an issue. So it's out of the owner's mouth. Now, do they actually do it? I'll believe it when I see it. We all know the context and history there. But I believe that for a few reasons. And this goes back to, to sort of what we're talking about with Charrington and having a plan or whatever. Like, he's not a dumb guy. He's not gullible. He's not in this, you know, just because this is a cool hobby or whatever. Like, he's, he's smart. He knows how to build a winning team. There's no way Ben Charrington comes to Pittsburgh if he's not a, a afforded the resources, i.e. taking the best player with the number one pick to do this the right way. So that's another reason why. So we're speaking to you before Monday's game. And as we speak... The miracle of Kevin Newman continues. Kevin Newman is uh, batting 714 right now, leading the majors in spring training in batting average and on base percentage. And I know that he has faced roughly AAA level pitching, according to baseball reference, and that we're talking about 28 at-bats. But going 20 for 28 is pretty impressive, no matter what the context. So... Has he changed anything? Is this just ultimate small sample fluke or is there something underlying it that is encouraging? Because you have to think back to 2019 when, you know, he was a, an above league average hitter and an above league average player, period. And then he's had sort of a disastrous 2020. So maybe this is just a reminder that he's more like the 2019 Newman than the 2020 model. Yeah, I would venture a guess that the, the reality as it often is, is somewhere in between those two. But I, I, I do agree with you. Like, 714 in slow-pitch softball is good, <laughs> yeah. let alone, like, you know, Major League Baseball, even if they're AAA pitchers. But whatever. Like, that, you know, he's been really good this spring, and I do think there's some stuff going on with him that should be encouraging to people who follow the Pirates. And, and a few of those things uh, uh, highlight his defense has been better. I believe he made eight errors in, you know, less than 60 games played, but, you know, in, in limited innings last year, he, he struggled defensively and he's been pretty good defensively so far this spring. As far as his swing, he was guilty last year of basically trying to pull everything. And I'm not sure why he did it because I, you guys have probably looked at some of his exit velocities. And I mean, they're not great. The best thing he can 
do is sort of use an all-field approach. And he changed his stance a little bit, uh, moved his hands around. He, you see him trying to take the ball the other way more, which I like. And, you know, it, another amazing thing about his spring, he hasn't struck out. He's making a ton of contact. And I don't need Kevin Newman to hit 20 homers. I know he's not going to. But if he's making consistent contact and he's probably going to hit six on the Pirates, that'll work. And right now they need somebody to take control of that shortstop job. But Cole Tucker has been very disappointing this spring. Eric Gonzalez has been, you know, okay. I kind of see him as, as a backup guy. But, you know, Kevin Newman has a chance to, to earn a job, to keep a job, to, to go through ARB and make some money and, and potentially come on, out on the other side, you know, as either a trade chip or a, an established major league player. And what I've seen from him this spring tells me that that is very much in play. One guy who I think we could expect to hit higher than sixth in the in the Pirates lineup is Cabrian Hayes, who had this really scintillating major league debut last year. He hit the ball hard. He hit for average. He has some underlying stats that suggest that he might have gotten a little lucky. I don't think we expect him to run a 450 BABIP again, and his ex-WOBA and his WOBA were uh, divergent from one another, but he is clearly a very talented player. What do they expect from him this year? Yeah, his numbers are an interesting lot. You know, I, I know what they say, but I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it doesn't need to be 450 or whatever, but the kid knows how to hit. He knows what he's doing, you know, and, and watching him in the field. Like, I think a lot of baseball, you know, outside of Pittsburgh and, and people just watching the game sort of took notice of his defense. But from somebody who gets to see it every day, it is so fun. Like, he makes some of the most difficult plays just look routine. You know, he had one yesterday. He's like sliding, or maybe it's two days ago, sliding to his left just quick down on his knees, gets up, strong throw. Like it, it, it just looks like it's so easy for him. And so that's been fun. They're expecting that out of him. Um, it's been kind of an interesting conversation with Brian this spring because I think a lot of people, namely me and my cohorts and the local media, you know, want to put these expectations on the kid because they need something, right? Like the Pirates need some sort of hope. They need something to pull them out of the abyss. And Brian Hayes is exciting. So it's a natural thing. But I don't think that, sort of jives with his personality like he's just a, a reserved kid he is who he is and that's not an indictment of him you know he's very steady but he's not like a a rah-rah you know i'm gonna be very outwardly vocal and so he's kind of talked about what the pirates have told me to just be myself lead by example don't try to be something i'm not and i think that's an interesting line for key brian to walk when we talk about what's expected of him is just you know they want him to be who he is be be a a leader because people are going to look at him, but don't try to force it. And I don't think he has so far. So one other promising 24-year-old, at least for a few days until he turns 25, is Mitch Keller. And Keller has been sort of a, a cipher, sort of a confounding couple of seasons here. He had maybe the unluckiest season of all time by some metrics in his rookie year when his ERA was over seven. Last year, his ERA was below three and seems to have gotten just as lucky as he had gotten unlucky the year before. And he actually walked more batters than he struck out. And again, it's, you know, five starts. So I don't know what to make of that. But what do the Pirates make of that? And what does he make of that? And after this uh, really whiplash-like couple seasons here, what is the expectation for him in 2021? Yeah, I think I, I wrote something or whatever. Like Mitch Keller just doesn't do anything subtly. <laughs> um, you know, it was his bad at like 475 yep. or something. And, and, you know, he was sort of, 
chugging along for a couple starts and then finishes the year with like 11 no-hit innings. And it's just, he's an interesting cat. What I've seen out of him this spring is, once again, it's been statistically weird. He has had games where he could not find the strike zone with his fastball. He had other games where he was around the zone the entire time and it looked tremendous. I don't know what to make of it. I agree with you with the five-start sample size. We're not really getting anywhere. His last time was you know, three innings, he walked four. I think he either gave up one or no hits, no runs. Like when he is around the plate with his fastball, Mitch Keller is so much better than when he is not. And I say that sort of jokingly because I'm sure the same line can be applied to every pitcher ever, but it does seem to affect him more. And I don't know whether it's a a confidence thing, you know, but having to sort of be a front of the rotation guy after losing Musgrove, Tyon, and, and so many other pitchers. It's been frustrating for people here because he can look so devastatingly good one day and so bad another. And I I don't know if people know what he's going to be. Shoot, I don't know if the Pirates know what he's going to be. But I know there's a lot of like PTSD around here with Tyler Glass now and just seeing what Glass now didn't do in Pittsburgh. I think he made 16 starts before they got rid of him and Keller's made like 16 or something and it they just followed very similar paths and so you know the negative Pirates fans are automatically assuming that Mitch Keller will follow the fate of Glass now and have to go somewhere else but I think it's really important personally just for the Pirates to inspire confidence in their fans to be able to figure out Keller. So we we talked about some of the guys who they shipped off this offseason. They did bring a few guys in, and we can kind of talk about Trevor Cahill and Tyler Anderson if we want to, but I think what might be more interesting for folks is to hear sort of what their approach is going to be to guys like this who they bring in on a one-year deal and are probably hoping to flip at the deadline if they show any promise. Do Do you think that this team will be pretty transactional in the next couple of years as it tries to both build a new core and maybe find some guys who are interesting and could stick with the team, but also get prospect capital back in return. I thought you were going to go with, we could talk about those guys if we want to, but we don't really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean any disrespect to Trevor Cahill and Tyler Anderson. They're just, you know, they're, they're known quantities at this point. <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I love you. <laughs> I do think they're going to be transactional. Like to answer your question, I think that that's why they brought those guys in here. I don't, I don't think they brought them in because they feel like these guys can come be a part of some core, which is one of the reasons why I was a little surprised that they didn't keep Todd Frazier. I thought he really fit that bill. Clearly, they did not. Uh, we can get into that if you guys want. But as far as Cahill and Anderson, I think they view those guys as pitchers that have maybe been misutilized, underutilized, or maybe just guys that, that they think they could get fairly cheaply and and give opportunity to let them pitch and they're going to produce well enough to be an attractive commodity. And I don't, I don't know if they're wrong, honestly. I mean, the good side of those guys and what they've done this spring has been, has been pretty solid. Cahill's first outing was excellent. His curveball still looks, you know, very much elite. And so if, if they can harness that, if Anderson can throw strikes, keep the ball in the park, which has been an issue for him throughout his career. I mean, I, I can see them being, transferable. And, and that's sort of the Pirates business model right now anyway. I mean, it was their business model this offseason. If you're good, if there's interest, we're going to trade you. And I think it's the same way right now. If they could get an offer for Gregory, Gregory Polanco, I'm sure they would take it. If they can get an offer for, you know, anybody who's not necessarily viewed as part of their core. I, I think it they owe it to their 
you know, need to get more talent to listen and potentially act. Well, I'm happy to talk about Todd Frazier if you want to. They've still got Adam Frazier, <laughs> so I guess their infield Frazier quota is still filled. But what happened to Todd? Yeah, that's it was it was just such an odd thing. And their explanation is that they needed the positional flexibility because theoretically of taking, you know, nine in the bullpen and you know, they're going to have four bench spots and, and they need somebody else to play the outfield, I guess, and, and Frazier couldn't play the outfield. My question back was, would be, you know, didn't you see this coming? It's not like Todd Frazier played the outfield last year or at any other point really in a meaningful situation, and that was why you brought him in. I mean, you brought him in to play first and third, to be a bat laid off the bench, potentially hit against left-handed pitching to help mentor some of the young guys. Like, that's, that's what his role was, and he has a nine-something – or 900-something OPS in spring, his three home runs. Like, he he was what you thought he was in spring training, and then and then you send him away and, and say that he can't make the team because he doesn't play the outfield. So that much didn't track for me. I, I wonder, you know, he, he dealt with some lower back tightness. Like, was it worse than maybe initially expected, and they just don't want to say that? I don't know. Were they really enamored with Philip Evans, who was good last year before he got hurt, hit over 400 this spring, has looked like a solid hitter and can play the corner outfield spot. So, I mean, maybe that's more. I just, I feel like that's, it's, it's a weird move because of the other stuff I mentioned with Cahill and Anderson. And if you have a, a veteran who performs, you can flip them. And, and to me, Frazier looked like that candidate times two. He hits a couple home runs. It's a good story, him mentoring to Brian Hayes or anybody else. All of a sudden, team of contention has an injury, and he would, would go there. But I just I don't understand the rationale for, for cutting him loose at this point. So last year was Derek Shelton's first year as manager. Tough time to be a rookie at any job, to start any job during a pandemic. And baseball is no exception. But to the extent that you could tell... What were his traits as a manager, and did he or has he evolved at all since he started the job? Yeah, he's changed a little bit in terms of what he wants the Pirates to do. And what I mean by that is I I think he maybe was hands-off last year. I don't know if he's waiting for his team to hit home runs or what, but I mean, they they weren't as active as they've been this spring. We've seen them make a concerted effort to run a lot, try to steal, take extra bases like they did. Didn't, they they were much more passive with that stuff last year. So I've seen Shelton evolve that way. His dealings with us have basically been the same. He doesn't give much. He's not a reveal everything to the media. He can be very personal, but he's also you know very personable and likable. He's just very secretive. Um, so that part is held. And we've seen him have a quick hook with pitchers. He's very sort of raise like in that mentality where he's probably going to listen to analytics more than his gut. If you have to separate new school, old school, I think he would be more in the new school way of doing things, which I guess I understand it. If you're the pirates, I mean, very few times anyway, do they get in a situation where they have a starter pitching into the seventh inning and pitching effectively where you have to make that move. So that's been different. And, and some of the stuff he's talked about too, is just, this is his first sort of foray into the national league game what few of those we've had this spring so far with the pitcher hitting, but I think we're also going to get a little bit more of a, a taste on his, you know, strategical bent or however you want to say it, how he handles the pitcher spot, maybe double switching aggressive moves late in games. 
I think that stuff was just a little bit limited last year, but we'll, we'll get a better sense this year. So Brian Reynolds had this really superlative 2019. He had a 130 WRC plus. He was worth over three wins. And then 2020 proved to be pretty bad in, in a lot of different ways. He walked a bit more, but he also struck out more. His BABIP collapsed. He didn't hit the ball especially hard. His WRC plus dropped to 72. So I'm curious, what, what happened with him? Should we just attribute this to the weird, you know, pandemic season and move on or was there some underlying issue here that he's going to have to course correct for yeah i don't i really don't think there's an underlying issue everything we've seen out of reynolds this spring looks like reynolds from 2019 last year was so weird and just how how hard contact for him and you know speaking anecdotally just seemed to not happen a lot and he he did not square balls up i he's been doing that on the regular this spring. He's been making a lot of contact. His swing is so smooth. It's so steady. It was weird to see that out of sync last year. And he's talked a lot about his timing and just never really feeling that was right. And I, you know, I think these guys, I think probably for all of them, there's, there's a, a piece untold here. I mean, the family aspect, his wife was pregnant. I can't remember if they were around, but I know that Reynolds doesn't give you much in interviews, but he's way more introspective and thoughtful than, than he lets on. And I have to imagine that's worrisome in the middle of a, a pandemic to not have your wife with you and, and all that stuff. And you're thinking about other things. And you know, then all of a sudden you get off to a horrible start and you realize this season that could define you is now a quarter over. And then you start pressing. And I just I think a lot of that stuff got into his head last year uh, because the Brian Reynolds I've seen this spring is you know, very much encouraging for the Pirates. They obviously have plenty of holes, but to me, Brian Reynolds is a guy that he's never not hit. He's going to hit. And I think that he's absolutely a part of this team score. What is the status of former Effectively Wild guest and accomplished show tunes deliverer, Stephen Brault? <laughs> Brault is no throw for at least a couple more weeks. I believe it was last week we were told he was going to pause throwing for four weeks. And at that point, they hope that the – he's basically got a lat strain. Um, I, I'm going to imagine latissimus dorsi, is that correct? Mm-hmm. I, I am certainly not a doctor, but he's got a left lat strain, and he's frustrated by it, certainly. I mean, he was probably going to be their opening day starter or home opener starter, depending on how Derek Shelton stacked those out. I mean, he was a guy, looked really good in spring, absolutely looked to as somebody who, like, hey, you've accomplished some things. You've been around. He's got a great – personality as you know i mean just a total goofball uh, and you know i mean that in the most endearing way possible so he's no throw it was an interesting conversation with our director of sports medicine todd tomzik who explained a little bit about like the build-up process and he said you know steven's not going to throw for four weeks we hope that this corrects itself it's nothing we you is going to require surgery at this point but it does require rest and a lot of it and he said you know, for every week that Steven does not throw, it requires two more to build back up to actual strength before he can pitch in a major league game. So, you know, you can do the math there. It's going to be a little bit for Mr. Brault. And it's it's an unfortunate thing for the Pirates, too, because their rotation is not very deep, as we're talking about with, you know, Trevor Cahill potentially being in it or Will Crow being a candidate on the outside. They, they need guys like Brault to produce and produce regularly. 
So just before we started talking to you, a little bit of Pirates news broke, which is that David Bednar made the team. So I guess the bullpen picture has taken shape. Can you tell us a little bit about how he fits into it and what that unit will look like in general? Because not a lot of name brand names in the mix, but sometimes the best relievers are not name brand names. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a no-name group. But honestly, I mean, in terms of what the Pirates should be able to bank on this season, the bullpen is on the list. Um, and I, I understand it's not a very lengthy list, but their <laughs> bullpen has been good. And where Bednar fits, I mean, the dude throws 98 with a, a terrific splitter and curveball. Like, he should be eventually a back-end guy. He's just been lights out, incredibly good this spring. I believe he's you know, up over eight innings, like 17 strikeouts, one walk, and he's just been unhittable and he's also a local kid and and pittsburgh's a weird twisted place as you guys probably know where we're like obsessed with pittsburgh and obsessed with local kids and if they wouldn't have kept him after that spring performance like that it just it would have been bad so i'm glad they did the bullpen is somewhat taking shape they've got a couple guys that i think national people or you know baseball observers at large would probably know with richard rodriguez maybe chris stratton i do think they're going through something of a bullpen transformation this season and that, you know, they probably under Clint Hurdle had more of a defined, you know, this is our closer. This is our eighth inning guy. This is our seventh inning guy. You know, I think about maybe Mark Melanson or Tony Watson or, you know, guys like that. And, and it's just not going to be that. I think they're going to more of a, a raise model a mix and match. You know, this is our, our high leverage group. Maybe this is our, our group with, a one or two run deficit this is our blowout gang you know something like that where i do think they're gonna role definition is just going to be a little bit more blurry than it has been in the past but michael feliz has looked better still very much up and down with him he can look like the best pitcher ever one day and the worst the next kyle crick has he's dealt with some velocity issues in the past it was down about five miles an hour last year he's seemingly gotten that back so i mean that's good for the pirates chase and shreve Pitch for the Mets last year. He's been been around veteran guys, a lefty that has looked pretty good throughout spring training. And, you know, they'll cobble it together. They, they've got some guys like Sam Howard as a lefty you guys probably have never heard of, but he's been been pretty good last year. And, and I, I do think they have enough talent back there to make something of it. I really do. So this might be the ultimate, what's that, a football for me to kick Lucy kind of question. But I'm curious if you anticipate any timeline, any scenario where this club, once its young core materializes and is in the big league, might spend a little bit of money? <laughs> is there any circumstance under which ownership might sort of relax the reins here? Because I think that you're you're right to say that this this player development group and this front office seems to have a good plan and they seem to so far be executing on it. But if all you have is player development and drafting, your your number of sort of pathways to contention narrow, which isn't to say that you can't, but they're, it's just harder when you don't have the option to spend. So might there be a time where they actually open up the checkbook? Sure. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And I really hope so. I think so. I don't know so, but I hope so. This this was a big topic of my interview with Nutting was just like, what happens? What happens if Ben fixes this? Because I, I do think he will. I do think they'll get better. I have a lot more confidence in that answer. But, you know, like you said, Meg, sooner or later, he's got to spend. He's got to invest in either, hey, Brian Hayes' contract, we're going to pay to keep you. Or I need a right fielder, we're going to go pay to get that guy. Or, 
you know, this is our young middle infield. We're going to keep them around for the next three, four years or whatever. You know, they have to show some sort of financial commitment to, to the city in, in terms of major league payroll. So what I think is that Ben Charrington is obviously respected around baseball. He could have had other jobs. He chose to come to Pittsburgh. Travis Williams, I used to cover the Penguins. I dealt with Travis a lot. He's well-respected around business, uh, the Penguins, the NHL. Like, he didn't have to take this job either. They both took it because they thought they could win here. And, and as I said previously with Ben, like, I don't think he suddenly got gullible or stupid. So I would have to believe that Nutting has some sort of realization that, like, look, I have to do this differently. I'm going to have to spend. We're going to have to add more to the payroll. Now, I agree that now's not the time. Like, you're just not good enough right now. And so that's been their focus of getting more prospects, getting better at the major league level. And then when you get there, that's the time to spend. And so you saw them make the offer to Hayes. I, I do hope they up the offer. I hope those two sides come together on an agreement because he's such a fun player to watch. And it needs to be the start of a lot of spending. I do believe it. But as I say to people who email me and get wigged out about this stuff like i i understand where you're coming from i understand where the hesitancy is with this ownership group because they haven't spent enough and so i i guess what i'm saying is i'll believe it when i see it but i do i do feel like something is at least a little bit different this time around one thing i meant to mention when we were talking about the rotation will crow was sort of the exception in this winter in that most of the players they acquired were younger guys prospects but crow who they got back from the nationals for josh bell is expected to step into the rotation right away so what are they hoping to get from crow why was he the player that they targeted as the return yeah it's an interesting one because we've talked you know at ad nauseum around here about that trade and everything we hear is that eddie yeen the young dominican right-hander was like the, their focal point for the deal and will crow has looked pretty darn good not that you know his spring training work is going to begat a, a Hall of Fame career. I'm not saying that, but you know he certainly looks more than a throw-in at this point. And the one thing I like about this kid that I, I think maybe they saw is just his aggressiveness. He's not scared of anything, and he doesn't have you know 97 mile an hour heat. He doesn't have any sort of devastating breaking stuff. But the kid can stay in the strike zone, and he gets gets weak contact and we haven't seen exit velocities really spike a ton on him and maybe it's a small sample size i mean maybe they'll go crazy after the regular season starts i'm not sure but you know i like his ability to pitch and and what he is doing out there it certainly seems like he knows what he's doing and they need all the starter help they can get right now and so i i do see him as somebody who maybe if there's injuries or, or whatever, he could slide into the rotation. I don't think he would be out of place. He might be out of place on the Nationals or, you know, other competing organizations. But in Pittsburgh, I I think he's a guy that could absolutely help them and if, if he continues pitching the way he has in spring. And last thing before we ask you for the prediction, another 24-year-old on this roster, Cole Tucker, famous for his hair, famous for his romantic relationships, not famous for his bat. Can he hit? Will he hit? You know what, Ben? I, I hate to say this because there are a few people I like on this team more than Cole Tucker. He's such a nice kid, just a genuine person. And I worry if he can. You know, if I have to answer yes or no, and answer no right now. I hate saying that, but I just haven't seen evidence that this, this kid can consistently hit major league pitching. You see signs, and then you also see, you know, a get-me-over curveball. He swings and misses. 
And I just I, I hate seeing it because he's he's athletic, he's driven, he's got a great head on his shoulders, he's got all of these things, but it is not translated into production. And they open up the shortstop competition this year, Newman, Gonzalez, Tucker, and he wasn't close and was sent out relatively early. So I guess the best thing I can hope for him is for him to go to AAA and, and sort of find it. Maybe it was a confidence thing. I, I remember talking to him about sort of getting into his legs more with his swing and, and using his whole body. He can tend to be upright. I think it causes some of that swing and miss stuff. But in any case, like I have a tough time looking at somebody as athletic and smart as Cole Tucker and saying they can never hit. It's just, it's been happening a lot where he hasn't been able to consistently hit or hit with any power. All right. Well, you've got a game to cover, so we will ask you the final question here. I will not ask you to predict rocker versus lighter unless you feel like it, but (laughs) how many games will the Pirates win in 2021? I'm going to go with 72, and I'm still saying they draft rocker. If if you want to throw it on there, then, you know, whenever they don't tweet it at me and make fun of me that's fine (laughs) all right appreciate the bonus prediction so you can find jason on twitter at j pg that's m-a-c-k-e-y and you can read him regularly in the pittsburgh post gazette jason thanks again always a pleasure guys thanks so much for having me have a good one That'll do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You heard me say earlier that I hoped Shohei Otani's last spring training start would go well. Spoiler, it did not go well. The less said about it, the better. He had a blister. I'm blaming it all on the blister. The blister will be fine in his next start, and I will not be taking further questions at this time. So just one more team preview episode to come. That'll be the Dodgers and the Orioles, the best and worst projected team, or at least they were when we started. As I look at this now, Fangrass playoff odds page, Dodgers, of course, still at the top. But it's actually the Rockies at the bottom The Orioles two-tenths of a win ahead So hey, that's something That one will be up soon And that will bring an end to our ninth annual season preview series You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon By going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild You still have time to sign up and support us in April Just have to do that by the end of March The following five listeners have already signed up And pledged some small monthly amount To help keep the podcast going And get themselves access to some perks Daniel Marcotte or Marcotti Richard Oksher, Jeff Beeman, Rory Stamp, and Joan Verbon. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. You're you lock yourself away day after day. But don't you know I'm with you? It's hard to be with you. One shot away from paradise, I'll be there to open your